Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tacova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovis.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. So there's a reason why I started Blood Origins. And that reason is simple. Is that I wanted to convey the truth about hunting. It brings awareness to to non-hunters that it's, it's more than just killing animals. How do I start it? Brittany. My name my is... Name. <laughs> Does my hair look okay? It's fantastic. My name is Mike Axelrod. Start again. Yeah, I hated it too. <laughs> Braxton, you said something in the car to me. You said that you were living on borrowed time. Hmm. There's a perception around who hunters are, what we're supposed to be, and a a feminist that works for a non-profit that is a hunter that has only eaten wild game for the last 20 years is likely not the thing that people think about when it comes to a hunter. Ray Penny and Carlos Gomez work for G&H Decoys. Now look, I'm, I'm not a waterfowl hunter. I like to duck hunt. But G&H Decoys is probably the oldest decoy manufacturer in the US, if not in the world. And Ray, under 40, Carlos, over 60, have formed a team to resurrect this decoy company. Now this conversation is far more than just decoys. It delves into duck hunting, it delves into the conservation issues of duck hunting, and it really, it's a striking conversation about a company and its values and how those values intimately sink in with the future of hunting. Now, Robbie, that uh, we have people sometimes... That you're better looking than we him? We have people at times look at us when we hand them their cards, hand, us, hand them our cards, and they say, y'all got your cards confused. Because mm. he looks like it's, Carlos. It's and, become a running joke that we go places together and people assume that I'm Carlos Gomez. He's well, Ray. well, Ray Penny, you certainly 
have the look of a Carlos yes, Gomez, and Carlos Gomez, you certainly have a look well, of a Ray Penny. My mom's Pennie. an Okie and my I dad's a Colombian. I like to say he was the first dope smuggled out of Colombia. And uh, <laughs> is this how this podcast is going to go? It very well may. You got both of us here. Yeah. And Ray, you're Puerto I, I Rican. Am my mother's from Ponce, Puerto Rico. And, and white my trash. dad is, is white trash from Ada. I shouldn't say that. He'll probably listen to this and give me a hard time. But my, <laughs> they both grew up. Both my parents grew up in very, very humble home situations. Uh, my dad in in Ada, Oklahoma, and my mom in in Ponce, Puerto Rico. Uh, Ponce. Ponce of all places. You've been there, dude. I did a sports. This is this is. I love you know. I did a sports fisheries restoration project in Excellent. Puerto Rico. Where was it? On on um, in all of the dams. So we would drive through Ponce. We would drive through Ponce. Um, we stayed. Gosh, it's been so long. It's probably been gosh ten years ago, twelve years ago. We stayed in the northeast corner. Um, if you told me names, I'd be like, "Yep, mm-hmm. that's where we were." Um, anyway, we were working in all the all the um, headwater dams, putting triploid bass into uh, those sports fisheries. Because here's the situation sure. in Puerto Rico: the temperature is so good that bass, if they're not triploid, the reason you don't have big bass is because they just reproduce themselves to a small right. size. And so, if you put a triploid bass into those systems, they don't mm-hmm. reproduce. All they do is grow, and they grow and grow and grow and grow. And we grew some I big that. bass in those right. lakes. Some of those lakes, I, in fact, I was there back in uh, June with my with my family. Um, my, my parents went, and we took my kids, and my wife went. And uh, I have two sons that are uh, 10 and 13, and they're just as crazy for fishing as they can be right now. And uh, so mm-hmm. we spent a fair amount of time in the salt water because that was something that they don't get to experience while we're here in Puerto Rico. Sure. I'm sorry, here in Oklahoma, but in Puerto Rico, uh, they also were after these peacock bass, but they knew about the, the size of the, of the largemouth bass that were in Puerto Rico. And so we were in, in mm-hmm. I think we went and fished Toa Baja one day. I don't know if that's a, a lake mm-hmm. that you'll recall. And uh, where else did we go fish? Oh, we fished Cerrillos, which was another, another lake. Cerrillos, yeah, we did Cerrillos, yeah, for sure. That's awesome. I love it when there's connections yeah. like that. Well, gentlemen... Um, GNH decoys. Welcome to the Blood Origins podcast. I um, I'm grateful for the reach out, Ray. You were the one who reached I out, did. right? I've been interested in your work and uh, interested in, in you know some of your more recent podcast episodes. And I think I reached out before you um, published the bit about pronghorn relocation, which was really interesting to me. Mm. Um, we have a lot of conversations here in Oklahoma about restoration of species that used to exist and. I have a, a lease out in the Panhandle sure. that has some pronghorn. So completely independent from my love for duck hunting, uh, I tuned in uh, to eagerly hear about uh, how it is that you move big game species from one state to another because that seems to be a somewhat unpopular sure. topic right now. Uh, the idea of sure, crossing sure. boundaries with anything with uh, with hooves and fur right now. So, well, you know, you got to be wary. You know, you don't want to unwillingly put something in a system that. Is not supposed to be there so you've got to be very cognizant of, of what you do you've got to be very careful about you know disease transmissions and whatnot and honestly if, i don't know if you listen to the podcast about pigs in ontario I saw the headline. Uh, that's why yeah. they stopped they stay they are they're not allowing the hunting of pigs in ontario they're making it illegal 
just to stop someone potentially bringing a live pig over. Well, you know, it's a felony to hunt them in Kansas. To hunt it? Yes. No, no, no. Missouri, no, I think Kansas. it is. Is it yeah. Kansas? You can't hunt them in Kansas. You can trap them. You Same trap situation. Them. And I said it's a felony. Perhaps it's a misdemeanor. It's a felony to move a live hog in Oklahoma. 100%. It's a felony here. Uh, and Kansas just, t- but you can hunt them here. But in Kansas, you can, you cannot shoot one. You have to have mm-hmm. trapped uh, and collected, mm-hmm. I suppose, a, a group of them. So I, I think. No, it's the same by, scenario. By way of background, we'll probably get into some of these discussions more, more thoroughly. But I think by way of background, we had started to explain how Carlos and I met. And I think it'll be relevant to where we to go. So sure. I'll give you the order. Yeah, yeah, story. yeah. Um, I. Just give us the age ranges, Carlos. I'm sorry. Ranges. Age. age I'm, I'll be 67 in one month. And I'll turn 40 in December. So okay. Carlos old enough to be my dad. But uh, I, okay. I spent seven years in the Marine Corps. I used to work for a fishing tackle company after college. Then I spent seven years in the Marine Corps. I got out of the Marine Corps. I went back to law school in Tulsa. And I found a job uh, working as a prosecutor at the Tulsa County DA's office. Uh, and I was moved up to, to prosecute on the gang and organized crime unit. And I was uh, using the restroom one day there in the, in the hallway at the DA's office in the courthouse. And this game warden walks up behind me. I mean, right up behind me while I'm standing there at the urinal. And he says, are you Ray Penny? And of course, you know, I, well, I work with a lot of law enforcement, but a guy who, and I think, oh my goodness. Sounds like a Hollywood Have movie, I done man. something that I'm not aware of? Have I? And I said, yeah, I'm Ray Penny. Is there a problem, officer? And he says, well, Hurry up, you know, finish up and zip up and let's go have lunch. And I thought, okay, this is a little strange. And uh, so I walked, you know, walked over, washed my hands, went and introduced myself. And he said, I'm, I'm Carlos Gomez and his partner, uh, Brandon Fulton, was there. And uh, they said, we understand that you like to hunt and fish. Is that true? And I said, yeah, I love to. I love to hunt and fish. And I think of the, oh, gosh, there must have been 30-something prosecutors in that office at the time. At least. I think I was the only one that spent any time hunting and fishing. Um, and the long and short of it was that they had struggled and Carlos, you had been a game warden at that point for 36 years, Yeah, probably. 36 years. He ended up with, with 41 careers, 41 years. I'll let him tell his own story, but, but he was pretty far along in his, his game warden career at this point. And they told me that they had trouble finding prosecutors who would take their cases seriously because people didn't understand mm. it was, it was just a deer or it was just a stringer of fish. And why should this be deal Mm, so they took mm. me to lunch and they kind of explained this to me and and asked me you know would i uh would i be willing to to take on their caseload in addition to what i was was doing uh because they were eager to find somebody and you were working for the state 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 of oklahoma as a a prosecutor on the on and i was handling you know drug traffickings and shootings like that right right gang oriented so this was a real departure from what i was doing um but you know i was flattered by the fact that they came and, and sought me out and uh and it ended up being the beginning of you know i think what's been a, a prosperous friendship over what five six years now that we've known each other yeah about that long so um i listened to your don holder interview uh, i know yes, don sir. holder and uh okay uh, i know a lot of game wardens haven't been around and i've done ride-alongs with I didn't actually do that interview. Well, Cody right. did that interview because that's Cody's game warden in Colorado. The longest service get, serving game warden, I think, in the country, right? Years, yeah. He's a good man. Yep. But uh, You hold that title here in Oklahoma, don't you? 
No, I don't. No, we've got one. I think that's about forty six or forty seven years. He, but you're second. You've got to be second place. Yeah, I'm in the top three or four, I think. But uh, I had a lot of people egging me on, saying I needed to hang around and come on, take that record. I could get that. And I said, Why do I want to shoot my uh-huh, life away uh-huh. just for a stupid record? So I was ready to go. So I left. But uh, I was just going to tell you that uh, I've I've made cases. Uh, on illegal grizzly bears in Alberta and filed charges in almost every county in Oklahoma. Uh, I've arrested a guy in Dallas, Texas. I've uh, filed charges on people from Colorado. Well, really, probably, I'd say maybe 10 states and a couple of provinces. I did ride-alongs with British Columbia and Alaska and and uh, just, you know, kind of, in my years, been fortunate enough to interact and 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 have uh, connections, develop connections with a lot of guys around the country. The uh, there's a game warden association, Robbie, called the North American, and uh, our acronym is NAWEA, which is N A W E O A, and that's a Wildlife Enforcement Officers Association, and they they gave Don Holder a recognition as the top game warden on the continent i think it's bob i think it's bob, bob holder, holder. Bob holder. isn't it bob you're holder right, you're right excuse me that's but, right uh, mm-hmm. he got recognized and i was on the board of directors for noia and uh, he was selected as the officer of the year for the continent that year. amazing and uh, amazing. we gave him an award and so forth and and we're also members of the same association there's a five state game warden association which is new mexico texas colorado kansas and oklahoma and I, that's how I got to know him and, uh, you know, just a wonderful guy. But anyway, so we have good relationships with a lot of game wardens. We all work together across uh, boundaries and solve cases together on stuff. When they need somebody, you know, from Tulsa that's done some dastardly deed, they call they mm-hmm. called me at that time. Mm-hmm. I'd go get them for them. Mm-hmm. So Carlos had a long career, and I ended up leaving the DA's office and going to private legal practice. Um, which was enjoyable, but, you know, I didn't have the occasion to work with Carlos and Brandon anymore. And uh, I eventually had this opportunity, and we'll, I'm sure we'll tell you a little bit more about this as we go on, to, to sort of pick up uh, G&H decoys from, from near total collapse and failure. And one of the things that I wanted, you know, G&H decoys is 88 years old. The company was founded in 1934. Is there an old decoy company? Is there an older decoy There's company not. than GNH? And we were at Delta Waterfowl this weekend, and we walked the the Delta show. Oh dang, man! I'm so many people said I needed to come. We live in. I just moved my family, and we're in Colleyville, Tennessee, so we're two hours away from. Well, Little next Rock. year for sure, you've got to be there. Oh no, we're going to see you before this. Excellent, Other excellent. Plans. So um, we were there, and we walked that show. And I think we're not just the oldest decoy company uh, in the world. I think as far as I, I don't. And I'm not trying to say this to brag. I'm not sure that there's another company in the waterfowl space that's been in continuous operation longer than we have. Um, so, to, you know, company founded about a week after FDR signed the Duck Stamp Act. It made uh, the use of live dec- live birds as decoys illegal. And uh, so this guy, John Gazalski, and it's, it's really remarkable that this company started when it did. If you think about what Oklahoma was in 1930. It started in, in Oklahoma? Oklahoma? Henrietta, Oklahoma. And we've been there continuously. Uh, in 1934, Oklahoma was the Dust Bowl in the middle of the Depression, and he saw an opportunity to sell 
uh, decoys to people because they were no longer going to be using live birds. And he started making them in his, in his garage, you know, in the shop behind his house. And uh, he eventually went to his, his name was John Gazalski. He went to his father-in-law, J.V. Hutton, and asked uh, for a little bit of seed money to sort of expand the business and, and continue operations. And so his father-in-law partnered with him, and G&H stands for Gazalski and Hutton. And uh, so okay. when, we, when, when we had the opportunity to sort of reset the company and restart it, uh, I, it was important to me that conservation be something that was at the forefront of what we were doing, right? G&H existed because of a deliberate decision for conservation, and, and that a resource exists over the decades is only because people have decided to put the time and the effort and the energy and the dollars into ensuring that the resource continues to exist. Uh, and the, the group, this is one of the things mm -hmm. that I appreciate most about your message, the group that does that best of anyone in the United States is obviously hunters. So when I had the opportunity mm -hmm. to come and, and sort of take the reins of GNH, one of the first things I did was call Carlos, who had recently retired, and say, hey, I need, you know, Carlos has 41 years of, of authentic experience, not just working as a conservation officer, but you've taught hunter education to the children of people that you taught hunter education to. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, he's taught entire families uh, how, to, how to get in the outdoors and be a responsible steward of the, of the mm -hmm. resource. And so I said, Carlos, we need somebody that can come fill this role for us in an authentic manner. Uh, and, and it took a little bit of, you know, tugging the phone off. Prodding and probing. Yeah, uh, yeah. He was enjoying, you know, sitting around the lodge here, uh, enjoying yeah. his free time, but uh, he agreed to, to do it. And, and that's the role he manages for us now. Does G, did GNH prior to college, your position at GNH is a conservation manager or is that as a conservation director? director? Yeah. Did GNH have a position like that before it, it sort of wobbled a little bit? I don't believe so. Now, Ray would know if, if anyone knows, but uh, I think that Mr. Gazalski and, and the two, the original GNHs, that, uh, Mr. Gazalski had a son that was ironically born in 34, and he's the gentleman that passed away, and the company was struggling to just, you know, stay a company for a couple of years there after he had died and, and when Ray came into the opportunity to, to take it over. So he died a year or two before we, we came into the picture. And uh, I understand that he was involved with a lot of different little projects and, you know, little pet projects. And he, you know, he liked to hunt waterfowl himself and certainly had um, connections to different people that, that were doing good things. But mm -hmm. I don't think he did anything that was official like Ray's done. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, to, to the best of my knowledge, that, right. that position didn't exist, you know, in a deliberate fashion. But the, the company was known for a lot of years for being very involved with, you know, local and, and national conservation organizations. Uh, you know, with as quickly as things move through the Internet nowadays, though, um, and as busy as the rest of us at the factory had our hands full with trying to, you know, the factory hadn't made a decoy in two years. We had a lot of equipment to rebuild. Really? Employees to bring back, you know. So, so like Carlos mentioned, Dick Gazalski is the son of the founder. He passed away in uh, January of 2021, just of old age, okay. and just, uh, he didn't have it there. I assume COVID also, you know, did a little bit of a number prior to him disappearing, I or was it already? I, to best of my knowledge, I, I'm not sure he ever that COVID ever contributed, but I think he had been in poor health for a number of years. No, not his health. I'm oh, like I'm, I'm sure that COVID like. contributed to that. Well, you know, in a weird way, I think COVID may have kept the company alive. 
because oh, okay. this, the factory sort of stopped producing decoys, I think sometime in, in 2019, but there was a lot of inventory still inside that factory. And Dick Gazalski's health started to fail in that year. They're, they had trouble keeping the doors open. They had trouble keeping staff in the factory and they were just sort of selling the existing stock between 2019 and 2021 when we finally, we purchased the business on December the 15th of 2021. Uh, and I, I'm willing to bet, you know, that, that there was anything, it, it wouldn't have been possible to buy the business had it not been for the fact that we've seen this surge of people getting outdoors uh, that occurred after mm-hmm. the pandemic. You know, we, we watched the license figures very, very closely to determine whether or not this was even worthwhile for us to pursue, to try to resuscitate the business. Sure, sure. And when we saw like here in our home state, uh, Hunting license sales was was up thirty. I'm going to say this wrong, and somebody's going to write me an email about it. Thirty two percent in Oklahoma in 2020, uh, and then I think mm-hmm. even in, in 2021, I'm not sure everybody stayed, but I think we still had something like 18 percent growth in 2021, mm-hmm. which is still much larger growth year on year than we had ever of experienced. Yeah. Some places like if I'm understanding correctly, Michigan had 67 percent license. Yeah, in certain in certain licenses, right. and, yeah. And I think we've seen a lot of those people stick around, and so I think a lot of them had more time to spend outdoors, uh, and they decided I got I can't stay trapped in my house all day long. And I think that little trickle of sales that GNH was was able to execute managed to sort of keep the doors open until we could purchase the business from his estate and get in and and you know we had to form an ownership group and go find the right people and fund the purchase and 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 then we had to rebuild a bunch of equipment, machines that hadn't been run in two years. Um, some of the things we had to go, we had to go into town to the Taco Bell to find the employee who knew how to run the one piece of machinery and say, That's Hey, we, so we really need you back. Uh, and the guy, you know, walked into the, into the manager's office in Taco Bell right then and there and said, this is my two weeks notice. I'm going back to GNH. And, uh, <laughs> there's a, there's a ton of, I can tell you stories for hours, cool stories of, of people coming back to throw in. And the community has been really supportive of us um, that we're opening this factory because in addition to being the oldest, we're the last uh, production waterfowl decoy manufacturer that's still in existence in the United States. There's, there's a couple of others that are sort of uh, moving along, but they're not doing the, the volume and they don't have the, you know, there's a lot of mom and pop carvers and some smaller decoy makers, but in terms of, of, Mass produced, mm-hmm. mass marketed, consumer quality decoys. We don't we don't make a decoy that you put on your mantle. We make a decoy that you know you can hunt over for ten years and then get on to somebody sure, else. Sure. I think we're the last one that still does it in the U.S. Well, I noticed that on your website, and obviously that's something that's you know, you know that's something that people are relating to nowadays. Is this idea of everything's done in the U.S. It's done by U.S. hands. It's done with. I don't know if the materials come from the U.S., but that you know, at the end of the day, that doesn't really matter. But it's being yeah, built here. They do. It's being materials, manufactured here. The materials come here. from America. Yeah, we're very proud of having a, domestic, a completely domestic supply chain. So our paint is is manufactured in Oklahoma City, and our plastic is manufactured in De Quincey, Louisiana. Um, our boxes are manufactured in in Tulsa, Oklahoma. Um, I don't, you know, the the farthest that anything, there is one tiny little piece. There's a there's a classic goose head. It's not even for a goose that we make anymore, but we have a lot of customers that still have these geese and they need replacement heads. The only piece that we make that is not made in the factory is that goose head. It's made at a place called uh, Mimic Fishing Tackle in Hevener, Oklahoma. So it's two hours down the road. Uh, and you know, we we like to brag about the fact that the first time our decoys get in a boat, it's your boat. 
Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. No, I, look, I, the story is, you know, the story is awesome. Um, I'm looking on your conservation page, and uh, you know, it says, you know, through through support of Ducks Unlimited, Oklahoma Wildlife Conservation Foundation, Delta Waterfowl, Backcountry Hunters, and Anglers, you know, hopefully we can add and Blood Origins. Uh, GNHD coys continues, you know, that, you know, that kind of, but no, it's, I think your message is spot on, you know, that you guys have resurrected yourselves from the dead. And look, you're speaking to someone who's naive when it comes to decoys, decoy spreads, you could start throwing terminology out at me and I wouldn't know half of it. Okay. I'm a very young nascent hunter. I only started hunting when I was 26 years old. Yes, my family is steeped in hunting heritage, but at the end of the day, I'm like these guys that are late adult onset hunters, and I've got two young boys that I want to teach, right? I've never owned a decoy. I've never owned a waterfowl decoy because I've never had a place to go. Or I'm that guy that I've got, I'll I'll Mm -hmm. go with friends. Oh, they've got the place, they've got the decoys kind of deal. I've never like attempted it on my own, but I know. Then in the next five years, probably I'm going to sure. want to. And when I got in, when I get into it, and a lot of people that want to get into it, you know, and when you start looking at all the companies, and sure, your field, I would assume, based on just knowledge of the industry, is pretty mm-hmm. crowded, yeah. right? The decoy field is pretty crowded. And so people are either going to choose for two things, and that's what typically people choose. They either choose for price, I'm just going to buy the cheapest sure. stuff I can buy. Or I'm going to buy for the story. Sure. I'm going to buy for the heritage. I think there's another component to that, and I think it's it's quality and craftsmanship. Um, I, I don't, if I'm honest with you, Robbie, I don't want people to buy our decoys just because of the story. I'm not sure that I even want people to buy. I'm I'm very very proud of it, but the fact that we're made in America shouldn't be the reason that you purchase our decoys. It, it's maybe it's a factor. Maybe it's something that informs your purchasing decision. But I want people to buy our decoys because they're the best made, highest quality product that you can find. And the reason that GNH. What makes them so high quality? Like people can just say that, right? Let's let's be honest. We are this the, the this is the you hear it all the time. This is the best sure. decoy ever. And we we have spent hours and hours and hours debating this in the factory, especially as we start. To, we, we're in the process of developing new products for the first time for this company since 1996. They haven't had a new a new decoy release since 1996, and we're going to do that very soon. And uh, cool. Why? What is the what is the feature that you should buy in a decoy? And you're not a you're not a hardcore waterfowler, and so you probably have your own set of, of, of preconditions. Like you, I'm an adult onset hunter. I didn't. I went hunting for the first time when I was 22. Um, though similar to you, though my now you own a decoy, now I own a decoy company? company. Though my dad grew up hunting. <laughs> Um, my dad tells stories about um, you know there's a, there's a wall he, he lived in Lawton Oklahoma for a while and there's a Walmart in Lawton and we were driving through that town and he said where that Walmart is is the field where my buddies and I used to go shoot quail and he said that you know they would wander around in that field out there and they had a dog that would you know wouldn't point worth a hoot but they just wander around and try to kick these birds up he was 12 or 13 or something and so he had a history of it there are family firearms that I have I have finally inherited but we, when I was when I was a kid we grew up. I grew up overseas living in Venezuela. And so there was no opportunity to hunt mm. in Venezuela because we were foreigners. We couldn't own firearms. And so when we sure. came back to the States, I was in my later teenage years. And then I ended up, you know, shortly after that going to college. And I fished a lot as a kid. 
but I didn't hunt until I was 22 mm-hmm. for the first time. And I actually called my dad and I said, dad, I really wish that you had, I know it's not your fault. You know, we lived overseas, nothing you could do about it, but I wish that I had had the opportunity to hunt as a kid. Can we go hunting? And so we, we booked this trip. I was actually working for a fishing tackle company at the time. We booked this trip with a guide and we fished all day long. And then we hunted doves in the evening. And I was like hooked. hooked. I had a colleague yeah. at the fishing tackle company say, Hey, let's, uh, let's go get out and go duck hunt this weekend. And I went duck hunting for the first time. And I, I, it's not lost on me that for people who don't duck hunt, the barrier to entry is kind of high, right? Because it's, it's yeah, ear intensive. Absolutely. It's a creature that migrates. Um, they're not, the birds are not always. And the pressure on the land that's available is and, insane. And finding a spot to go kill the ducks is oftentimes very, very difficult. And so, you know, I had to undertake that process as an adult and learn how all of this works. It turns out that duck hunting is much more simple than it looks. But you have to have somebody take you and show you. I had to have somebody take me and show me how to do mm-hmm. this. And it, there were a lot of seasons mm-hmm. where I, you know, early seasons where I scratched my head and wondered, why am I doing this wrong? How come the birds aren't here? Um, but if you persist, you'll figure it out and you'll learn. And you'll learn, you know, the ways that different conditions, con- conditions affect the migration. You'll learn the way the species behave, what species migrate during what time of the year, um, you know, and, and, you have to you have to be persistent with it and you have to have a guide and so this is you know along that point of conservation it's it's we're not just talking about resource conservation in addition mm-hmm. to resource conservation there's the issue of, of bringing new people into the past mm-hmm. um mm-hmm. because if if there's going to be any ducks to hunt it's going to have to be because you and i taught our kids how to do this and our kids mm-hmm. will take it and mm-hmm. we'll, we'll have it and we'll enjoy it uh, that's a roundabout way of saying we sit down to think about what does a hunter need in decoys. You got to go make this initial purchase. You got to get in and buy this thing. What does a hunter need in decoys uh, when you're going to go buy them? There's a lot of folks out there that will tell the beginning hunter you have to have ultimate detail. You have to have um, you know individually painted feathers. You have to have all these bright colors, or you won't kill ducks specifically to that point that you mentioned about the availability of land to go kill birds on on public land you can't kill mallards unless you have perfect looking detailed decoys and i subscribed to that notion for a long long time and i learned as the years went on that that's that's i don't think that's the case at all so if i'm going to go buy decoys i don't know that i necessarily need great if i can buy a beautiful decoy let's buy a beautiful decoy i'm going to have to look at it every day that i hunt in the season uh but in, in my mind, the most important component is, is durability and quality. This is a thing that I've, I've got to buy on the outset, right? And then every year, I'm probably going to end up buying decoys. You can go and you can buy three dozen decoys every single year, and you can replace about half of them because you lose them because they crack when it's cold or the paint wears off and they just look like big plants. Well, somebody, somebody shoots, shoots them. them. Or you can go purchase a decoy that's, that's made of better materials that maybe you pay a little bit more for, but instead of replacing half your spread, maybe at the end of the season, you're only replacing the ones that floated across the pond because you threw them in water that was too deep or, you know, the ones your buddy shot, you know, unless you can buy foam, you can sure. buy foam filled decoys to mitigate that. But you end up replacing a whole lot less decoys if you spend your money on something that lasts instead of spending money on something mm-hmm. that uh, you have to replace mm-hmm. over and over. It's the same as a firearm purchase. It's the same as a a piece of archery equipment purchase. It's the same as the piece of camouflage clothing purchase. You can be comfortable and have a piece of gear that lasts for years, or you can buy something cheap and, and you can 
pay for it again next year and pay for it again the following year. And that's, that's our pitch is, mm. yeah, we're American made, but this company has, and, and don't take my word for it, go find somebody else that duck hunts and ask them, what is GNH's reputation? Uh, and, and across the industry, we're known for being a, a very high quality, very durable decoy. And the, and the key feature we're known for is the paint. The paint lasts for, mm. for five, eight, 10 seasons, and you don't have to repaint your decoys or throw them away. And that's something we're, we're very proud mm -hmm. of. Carlos, from a conservation perspective, obviously this is is front and center. It's front and center of your website. You actually have conservation second in your menu of things, and your decoys are actually third and fourth, which says something. And so, what does it say, Carlos? What does it What does it say from a GNH perspective? I, I guess one to what What do you What do you see as the struggles in the future for conservation? for your industry for what you guys do um and how do we fix it well i've heard you discuss this with your other podcast guests in the past and <clears throat> i don't think anyone has the the magic bullet but um as ray alluded to uh you know we've got to have hunters we've got to have a place for hunting and of course, we got to have that habitat for wildlife to reproduce and places to live and, and pass through and, and stop through on their migrations and that sort of thing. So really, it's a combination of, of having places and having people that want to, to participate. So, you know, as well as I do, we got to have payers, we got to have paying hunters. And, uh, mm -hmm. you know, I don't think anybody's going to do it just for the sake of the wildlife. Um, you know, I, I probably certified, I guesstimated once at the end of my career, uh, around 20,000 kids in hunter education. And I average about 500 a year. And, you know, one of the points that I've made to the class is you won't find little old ladies uh, buying bags of bird feed and binoculars and people with cameras. You won't find them buying a duck stamp and buying a hunting license for the sake of the wildlife that they love. They're not, they're not doing it. Mm -hmm. It's the users and the consumers um, that are the conservationists that are putting the money out there for us to have those things. So we've got to have those people. And uh, you know, so one of the, one of the big challenges in our area, and I think it's probably true across the country is giving people a place to hunt, and, and finding properties where they can access and, and use, you know, and, th and that's why we feel strongly about uh, uh, public land access and, uh, you know, an observation that Ray explained to me, this is something that escaped me for a long time. I mean, I preached about uh, being a hunter and the reasons for being a hunter and the heritage, and th there's a multitude of reasons why people hunt. But uh, when I preached all that to them, um, you know, one of the things that I overlooked that he's explained to me is that waterfowl hunters have to have public land. You know, we've got the big lodges where everybody pays big bucks and they're members of a of a prime place, but they're just a they're just a pin dot of the numbers. Uh, sportsmen mm -hmm. that are really the ones that are going to support the activity are the mass public of sportsmen that are on public waters, public lakes, and they've got to have access on public land. So all those things come from those dollars, uh, from those licenses and, and stamps. So 
really that's that's the big challenge in my mind and of course the other side of the coin is we've got to have birds right we got to have critters for people to pursue right so our managers are always working on those strategies trying to come up with ways to help increase our numbers and and support that even though they're losing habitat all the time let me let me play devil's advocate there's a lot of people out there that will say we don't need any more hunters, Carlos. Did you say we don't need we any plenty. more hunters? We don't need any more hunters. We got plenty. We need more land. We need more access. That is the key. That is the problem. Getting more hunters is a problem because it just means more pressure on the small places that we have. Thoughts? So we've heard a guest recently on your podcast that uh, advocated a similar position. I wonder who that was. I've, I've followed. I've followed him making those comments for, for some time, uh, and I, I think it's interesting. I like Carlos' answer. Go well, I, I, I disagree. I believe there's plenty of room for a lot more hunters. We've had a lot of hunters. We've lost a lot of hunter numbers. Yes, we've lost habitat, but uh, I think there's. I think there's plenty of room for more hunters. And you know, if anything else, if we would just level off our decline. And, and maintain a healthy population of hunters. I'd be happy about that. Oklahoma has done a good job of, of bucking the trend of, of declining hunter numbers. Um, a lot mm -hmm. of states I know have gone down, but Oklahoma hasn't. But, uh, uh, you know, I believe that there's plenty of room for lots of hunters. The, the, the issue, and, and one of my favorite things, Robbie, is uh, archery. I like to uh, almost exclusively bow hunt. And, um, uh, you know, it's kind of a solitary kind of a deal. It's not the, it's not the group sure. of guys in a duck blind that get to socialize and mm -hmm. have all that fun of, of teasing and talking and eating and carrying on and then wait, get quiet. Here's birds coming. You know, they get to really benefit from several aspects of hunting, uh, socially that, that deer hunters don't too much. So deer hunting, turkey hunting, different uh, kinds of hunting that I've done, it's very competitive for a place to hunt. It's very competitive for an area. Sometimes it's competitive for a particular animal. Uh, you know, I know you've talked about the trail cameras in Arizona. Um, I visited with those. Yeah, we uh, seem to have tackled a couple of sticky issues. What's that? <laughs> I, we have we, we tend to tackle some sticky yeah, issues. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. Well, I, I I knew some of the. Uh, uh, managers and, and wardens in Arizona. And, and I visited with those guys about the, the camera issue as well, but you know, it gets real competitive for certain animals and, and for certain places to hunt. Mm -hmm. Would you say that duck hunting is the most competitive hunt out there? I don't think so. And uh, I have to, I have to temper my answer to my experiences around here. Now I'm certain that there are places that it's extremely competitive and I, Oh yeah, like Biomeda and Arkansas, right. you hear right. about these, the mecca these of public lands hunting. where everybody's lining up and the, and the clock strikes whatever hour it is before you can put your boat in, and all the boats rev up at once, and then it, and, you know guys are buying the biggest, you know, taking on debt to buy the biggest motor they can so they can be first to the back of the marsh. And, and limited numbers of duck blinds and places where duck blinds can be built, and and guys are all trying mm -hmm. to get to the best prime spot. They've scattered where the birds are coming through, and they all want to have their blind in the greatest spot, you know, first. And uh, mm -hmm. I even caught an episode once of the Louisiana game wardens where they were writing tickets to some guys that, uh, 
the blind was built on public land. Anybody can use it. First one in the blind gets to use it. And the guy that built the blind, or says he built the blind, was just harassing the crap out of everybody that would get in that blind. He, If he wasn't the first one there, he would ruin their hunting. He would just drive around and, and blow air horns and be a nuisance, you know, to just, just run these other guys off. So the game wardens got tired of hearing those complaints and staked it out and, and wrote that guy some tickets. But uh, I'm sure there's a lot of competitiveness that goes on. I'm sure there's some fights. I've heard stories of all kinds of issues where guys – uh, you know, knock heads over things, but really, you know, as you know, Ray mentioned back in the thirties, when our company started, we didn't have all the lakes we have, you know, almost not mm. only dust bowl days. Um, we had a lot of our impoundments that were created starting in the 1930s. It was kind of a way to combat the erosion and combat all the dry ground that we had. So, we created a lot of lakes in eastern Oklahoma, and those lakes now are, of course, great waterfowl places. And um, mm-hmm. when there's plenty of water, and there is plenty of water, certainly in, I would say, in the whole west half of our state, there's lots of water. So I can't speak for all the other states, but where there's lots of water, there's lots of opportunity. So there shouldn't be a lot of competition, mm-hmm. but guys naturally would like to have their spot. Everybody wants to have kind of a mm-hmm. corner on the market where they know it's great, it's their place, they don't have to worry about other public hunters crowding in on us, you know, and investing our hunting. Mm-hmm. So there is always... It's, it's funny, you know, some elements that you said speak to the last time we spoke with Matt Ranella, and he makes a good point, which is if hunters just exhibited generally, even just generally, a little bit more kindness to one another... Just to like, hey, we're all in this together, man. Stop shooting holes in the bloody boat that we're all trying to row right. upstream. Right. I'll tell you, here's here's my perspective. I actually listened to that episode pretty recently. It wasn't it wasn't more than a few days ago that I listened to that episode. Uh, and and I have read I read his piece, the piece that you all talked about during the podcast. I read it some time ago. And you know, full disclosure, maybe Matt Ranella, if you're listening to this, we didn't intend to come on this podcast to be point counterpoint uh, to your to your theory. But I candidly and respectfully disagree with it. Here's, I think we do need more hunters in the pastime. I think we do need more people out on the resource doing it. I hope that everybody pulls their kids into doing it. The, the plain and obvious reason for that is that the dollars that we spend in the, in the pursuit of these things through levying of excise taxes with Pittman Robertson and, and all the other ways in which, you know, money for concert, duck stamps and everything else, the whole nine yards, those things, that's what's funding the habitat improvements. That's what's funding the availability of public land. When that revenue stream dries up, the work that's being done to to ensure that the resource exists, it will stop eventually. And then you'll have much less public land and you'll have much less resource. I do agree with that last statement you made though. Here's, Here's the thing that has to change. We can grow the number of hunters. We can continue to work on robust R3, but we have to change the culture. Maybe that means changing the way that some of the R3 is done. I can remember that uh, when I had to take hunter education as, a, as an adult onset hunter, you learn about, you know, and I can't remember specifically what they are off the top of my head here, but the phases of a hunter, you know, and the, and the phases that you'll go through where at first you're sort of getting yourself oriented to what it is that you're doing. And second, you go through this phase where uh, it's about how much of the resource can I consume? And then maybe as you start to right. mature, uh, it's less about how much of the resource can I consume uh, but 
you know, your um, the quality, quality of, of the resource and your habits start to be sort of tempered right. somewhat. And then finally, the fourth stage is that, you know, you think about that old man in the blind, the senior citizen who is, uh, you know, at that point, maybe just passing it on. Why'd you point to Carlos like that? Senior citizen. Dang, Carlos. We need to to keep people out of, not keep people out of, we need to try to usher people through. I I don't even, we have this kill culture that's very unhealthy for hunters. Mm -hmm. To be clear, we're all going out there to kill something, right? That's the difference between hunting and hiking. We're all going out there to kill something. But when your entire hunt, when your entire hunt experience is summed up with a pile pick at the end of the day. And it's how many birds can I stack on a tailgate? And when your rhetoric on social media is about whacking them and stacking them. And when the way that you treat your game is I'm just ripping the breast meat out and I'm just burning it on the grill and eating it just so that I can go out and kill another limit tomorrow. And I don't bust the possession limit. That's, that's the culture. That's the rub. Uh, I'll bet if Matt Rennell and I sat down and, and had a beer and talked about it, I'll bet that's where we'd agree is that that's the toxic culture that nobody likes to be in the marsh with. It's the kill culture, guys. Mm-hmm. But if we can teach mm-hmm. people that hunting doesn't always mean it, – it's specifically different for waterfowlers because this idea of limits. It's sort of akin to fishing, right, except there's no catch and release duck hunting. When you go elk hunting, you're going to kill one elk on that tag, and you're going to look at this elk and you're going to say – you know, he scores the way I want him to, or he doesn't score the way I want him to, uh, or he has some characteristic that I like or don't like. Uh, and so maybe I'll pass on this elk and I'll kill a different elk tomorrow or the next day. That's not the case with hunting. Mm-hmm. It's with, with duck hunting. It's a, a higher volume sport. You have a, a limit every single day. And we have this idea that everybody has to go out and kill their limit. The hunt is over when I kill my limit. And we have to, mm-hmm. we have to I think, educate waterfowl hunters to perceive this idea of limits in a different fashion because Mm -hmm. the reason Mm -hmm. that everybody is scrambling out there in that fast boat, and I'm not trying to fault or blame the guys, the reason that everybody's scrambling out there in that fast boat and the reason that everybody's getting out there as fast as they can. And the reason they're shooting three and a half inch shotgun shells and the reason that they're shooting at birds and not everybody's doing this, but everybody knows that guy, the sky blaster guy. Yeah. The sky buster. The reason (laughs) they're doing that is that they have this perception that the resource is finite and I have to do it better than that guy does it or I won't get any. And I think we have to yeah, it's cool. change the culture so that people understand that yeah. I'm going hunting. I would, I would love to shoot birds, but me shooting birds and having a, a big pile of, of dead birds on my tailgate at the end of the day is not the be all end all. You, you'll notice on our, on our social media and on our web presence and everything, we don't post pile picks. Are there pictures of dead birds from time to time? Of course there are. We're hunting. There's absolutely nothing wrong with showing, mm-hmm. you know, the creature that you've harvested. But stacking mm-hmm. them up, um, it, it's we've got to teach people that there's there's something more to just to hunting than just whack them and stack them. You know, Robbie, something I want to chime in. Something you said about comparing the difference between being a hunter and a hiker. Um, you know, I've always in my lectures, I've always compared hunting to a game it's a game and you know i had two young daughters and i would take them hunting with me and they were not hunters they were not participants they were observers and it didn't take long before they're cold and they're hungry and they're bored and oh but wait there's deer don't you see these deer and this yeah i see the deer we've seen deer okay we're ready to go now (laughs) they're not the hunter they're a participant so right. you, know, you can be a great 
booster club guy on, on, on the bleachers. But when you're down there on the field and you're in the game, you're one of the participants, it's a totally different dynamic. And that's something that mm-hmm. we get from having hunters that you don't have by just taking people and showing people and trying to talk about it to people. They don't get it until they, you know, when they watch a video of a hunting scene where a guy's in a tree stand and the camera's panning down below him and the deer is walking below him and it's a big buck and the guy's nervous and he's set it all up, you know, what's going to happen and he's getting excited and he makes the shot. You're not into that whole segment of video except for the part where the deer shows up and he shoots it. And as soon as the guy has shot the deer, it's down to the grab and the grin and that's what they're doing. And, and you're ready to go on and fast forward to the next little hunting shot scene. You're not into <laughs> the hunt. You're not into the game. You're just an observer. So if I am in the tree stand and I hear the, the footsteps below me, and I see the animal, and I see the breath coming out of his nostrils, and I see him looking and queuing up on my mode, my motions, and my, uh, you know, giveaways. I'm nervous. I'm feeling all the adrenaline, all the things that a guy doesn't feel from the from the booster seats, from the TV, from the sure. TV cameras. You know, he's gonna be in the sure. game. So I think it's important that we have hunters out there. As participants, even if they miss, even if they don't kill much, if they're a hunter, even if they're just carrying a gun, I mean, we all started out with a BB gun or an empty BB gun or a stick or something we could point and go bang. We started somewhere trying to be a participant, not just an observer. And I've had anti-hunters tell me, they've said, why do you think you have to kill something? Why don't you just go out there with a camera? You could go out there with a camera and you can take a picture of it. You've got a beautiful picture. You can say forever. You never got your hands bloody. It's it's a wonderful experience. You get to go home and, and you don't need that meat. You can eat whatever you've got in the freezer. And I've asked them, how many times did you get up at four in the morning, drive an hour, walk an hour in total darkness, climb through the woods, get up in a tree in 20 degree weather and sat there for three or four hours so you could take a picture. They've never done it. They don't mm-hmm. do it. Only a handful mm-hmm. of professional photographers will do that. Nobody else does that. So it's sure. only because you're a participant, not an observer, that you hunt. And so, you know, we talk about the heritage. We talk about all the different things that you get from being a hunter. But it's that, it's that, uh, that adrenaline rush and all that excitement of being a player in the game that I think is, it, it, it can't be talked about and, and really uh, make it relatable to people. You have to have them there to really bite on that. And, uh, you know, I, I, had a, I had a daughter with me on a turkey hunt and she was not a hunter. And um, in fact, she went on to be a, a psychiatrist in Los, in not Los Angeles, in San Francisco. And, uh, no shortage of customers over there. So she's kind of a lefty. All right. And we see a lot of things differently, but she was with me on a Turkey hunt and long story short, it was a beautiful morning called in this big gobbler bird. He put on quite the show, uh, gobbled a lot, took his time coming in. We had a lot of anticipation time, a lot of up and down, uh, adrenaline from the whole deal. He finally came in close enough 
right in front of the two of us. I shot him. I killed him. And she said to me, uh, Dad, can I pose with the turkey and the gun? She wow. She said, I wish I could have been the hunter. I wish I could have, you know, been the one. To do that. She mm. got into it that much, you know, from being uh, in the experience. Involved. Thing. Yeah, exactly. But now she never did become a hunter. She never has done that. But that particular morning, she was so revved up over it. She really did want to... Uh, you know, she mm-hmm. she wanted to fake it. She wanted to she wanted to be mm-hmm. have some aspect of the hunt, and we did those with it together. Wow. And all she that. wanted to participate. She wanted she to be wanted that component of participation. Yes, exactly. Right. I think you know, mm-hmm. to Carlos's earlier point, Blood Origins and the work that Blood Origins does. I, I bet you the camera people and the and the cat ladies with the bird feeder are not the ones that are cutting you checks so that you can do the work that moves the needle. Nope, absolutely not. Absolutely not. Um, Ray and Carlos, um, I knew nothing about GNH decoys before you reached out. Nothing. Zero. However, I am very, very confident and I'm extremely um, inspired by the two of you. Two different walks of life, essentially that now have a common purpose. Uh, You're striving to do something real. You're striving to do something authentic, and it shows in the passion that you speak about the thing that you love the most, which is obviously hunting, but then secondly, very close by, is this company. Um, Where can people catch uh, what they, you know, catch you, GNH, What's the best place to, to get Absolutely. a hold of you guys? Um, go check out our website. You've checked it out. Um, and and I'll, I'll, you know, my caveat to all of this is that we've really only had control of the business since December of last year. Um, we've done, I think we've accomplished an awful lot uh, since, since December, but we still have a lot of work ahead of us. Uh, and so that website will change every single day. The website is uh, ghdecoys.com. Uh, you can check us out on socials at ghdecoys. Um, but you know, watch us, watch us as we grow. Um, we're, we our goal is to, you know, grow this business back to the, to the place in, in the, the market and in the, in the, you know, the, the pastime and whatever we want to call back into hunting that the business used to be. Um, we want to be meaningful and deliberate about conservation. Um, and we want to provide, you know, the best quality water, waterfowl products that we can, uh, to, to everybody who's out there. Uh, and you know, I, I think that I think that folks like Matt Ranella and I'm sure there's other voices have an interesting perspective, but we're we're pretty convinced that uh, the key to ensuring that there's a resource uh, and and ensuring that there are birds to hunt 25 years from now uh, is by continuing to do the conservation work, continuing to hunt, and continuing to, to introduce people into the pastime. Uh, so I appreciate you having us as a guest, and uh, you know. Watch us as we grow and uh, and stick with us. We need to get some decoys in your hands, and we need to get you into a duck blind. Uh, season is approaching <laughs> quickly, Robbie. So you you send me an email when we're offline here, and, and tell me what the free dates are, and we'll make it happen. I'll do it. I'll do it. I'll do it. Uh, well said at the end, and thank you, gentlemen. Much appreciate you. Thank, thank you. you, Robbie. Well, that's it for today. I appreciate you listening, as always. Leave a review, share it with your friends, and most importantly, do what's right to convey the truth around hunting.